Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with stars, creators, and industry leaders on Broadway and beyond. I'm Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to the actor Anthony Rapp. Broadway fans know him best as one of the original stars of Rent, and he's also appeared in shows including If Then, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and Six Degrees of Separation. He's been in films like Dazed and Confused and Adventures in Babysitting, and in 2017, he stepped into a major sci-fi franchise as one of Star Trek's first openly gay characters on the ongoing series Star Trek Discovery on Paramount+. Now, Rap has returned to the New York stage, starring off-Broadway in his solo show Without You. It's based on his 2006 memoir about his experiences in the original cast of Rent, coinciding with first the death of composer Jonathan Larson, and then the death of Rap's own mother. Now the actor is in the virtual studio with me to tell us about the unexpected joys of reliving loss, his advocacy for making the entertainment industry safer, and the Shakespearean role he's really itching to play. Hey, Anthony, thanks for joining me. Oh. Thank you so much for having yeah. me. Yeah, so you are performing in Without You, which is a show that you have done on and off over the years, and you are returning to it here in New York uh, right now. How is it going this time around? Um, it's going very well. It's been a long time desire slash dream of mine to get to do to New York. It's, you know, the epicenter of where everything happened in my mm-hmm. life and where rent happened. Um, so to be blocks away from the Nederlander, uh, it was, it's very, very special. And, you know, an opening night for my friends from the show to be able to come and be there was, um, really kind of, uh, out of body at moments for myself in ways that I didn't even anticipate. Um, and, and to have the response the way it's been, I mean, I have done the show over the years, but we've done a lot of work on it, especially recently to kind of, um, you know, try to refine it and make it the strongest it's ever been, I think. And and the response is reflecting that. So it's just, uh, it, it feels like a nice full circle moment. And, you know, there, there's stuff that is said in the show by Cy O'Neill, my friend who, um, you know, has been a friend and mentor to me over the many years. And she was an enormous source of support during the um, time when my mom was dying and after she passed away. And 
Um, but she talks about, you know, everything happens the way that it, it, it can only happen the way that it's supposed to happen, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I know that that might seem like maybe, I don't know, obvious to some people, but if you really think about it so often, we're like, oh, this shouldn't happen or we things should happen sooner or faster. And sometimes things have, they, they can only happen the way that they happen. Um, and it took the time it took and it's, it's turned out to be kind of like the perfect yeah. time. And what's it like for you to revisit that time in your life? Um, it's very uh, rejuvenating in a lot of ways. I also feel that more time has passed now that I'm doing now that now that I'm doing it since more time has passed. I feel like the distance is in some ways pulling it closer to me. I don't know if that seems like um, counterintuitive, but it's because it's farther away, I can, in some ways, dive in that much deeper into it in the moment. And, you know, a memoir, it, it is from memory. So, you know, I wasn't, I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I'm not a reporter. I'm, I, I set out to share my experience to the best of my recollection. And now with all this time passing, it's like the echoes of it are in some ways stronger than ever, if that makes any sense. So... Um, yeah, I feel very grateful for the chance to spend time in that incredibly exciting, also very sad, very alive time of my life. Yeah. And what what prompted the return now to the show? Well, really, I mean, so part of what had happened is a, a number of years ago, we were trying to get a, a New York production going. And simultaneously, If Then was a project that I'd been working on in workshops and that materialized. So then we had to kind of put without you on the back burner because I was very committed to doing if then. And then right after if then ended, I got cast in Star Trek Discovery, which was another life-changing experience. And the nature of streaming schedules is such that we you don't necessarily know from year to year when you're going back to work. And so the idea of trying to get something off the ground with this big mystery until we got into now that we've had a few seasons under our belt, they have a much better idea of how much time between seasons. So my um, friend, Chris Henry, who's a producer and director friend of mine who had helped me do the show at, at the New York Musical Theater Festival years ago, she reached out and she's like, do you think you have another window available between seasons? And I was like, yeah. And then she's now where she brought in her producing partner, Lisa Dozier, and then they started putting the word out and it just worked out that the timing just, yeah, that the theater was available. I was between seasons and, you know, just sort of like kind of perfectly lined yeah, up. Yeah. I wonder if you could wind it back a little bit and tell us first about the impulse to write the memoir that you mentioned, the memoir that the show is based on. What, uh, what prompted that? So um, there's a gentleman named Rob Weisbach who had his own imprint at William Morrow a number of years ago and he worked on the i don't know if you're familiar with there's this beautiful rent coffee yeah. table book that's that's what we refer to the sort of people call it like the rent mm-hmm. bible um and he was working on that book and so all of us in the original cast were very involved in that process we were interviewed for it i shared photos for it um and he and i became friendly during that process and then he one of the things he used to do as a publisher is sort of like talk to people he thought might have a book in them he'd be like what do you think do you think you have a book in you And I'd been, you know, I'd written since I was a little kid, but I didn't really have a book per se in mind or anything like that. But as we started talking, he had lost his father in his 20s. And my mom, when we first started talking, she had like she was very near the end of her life. I can't remember the exact timing. It was like right around the time she died. And 
he said, you know, and this may, I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time there was almost nothing out there that was really by and for young people dealing with that kind of loss. There was certainly stuff, you know, for people in their middle age, you know, talking about grief, but he thought it would be kind of a meaningful subject to explore. And I agreed with him and I just started like, kind of, I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to approach it. And then I started like writing some things and sharing them with him. He's like, yeah, I want you to try thinking of it this way or that way. And then it was a kind of a breakthrough moment and where I finally, I like wrote a couple chapters with that, with, and found a voice and found a way to approach it that he was like, yes, this is the way. And then made an outline and, um, put it together and it took a very long time to write i it took far too long in the sense of like i kept bump banging up against the the pain of reliving it to write about it and and that was the proximity was very very close to the time that it had happened um i think sometimes maybe memoir could be if you take a little more time away from something maybe it could be a little easier in that sense uh so it took a number of years to finish and then i finally finished and um, yeah, and then the thankfully the publisher still wanted it, even though it was like so late. Right. Yeah. Uh, actually, it wound up being at a, it wound up at Simon and Schuster over the course of like there was a lot of ups and downs with the process of because I took so damn long. Right. Right. And so, at what point did you decide I want to make a show of this and do the show? Um, that was also kind of like at the invitation or suggestion of someone that I wasn't even particularly that close with. It was a presenter that I was working with on a concert. We had a long drive out to Fire Island, to the ferry to Fire Island. And on the way, he's like, have you thought about adapting your memoir into a show? And not for him to produce or present, but just like, just talking. And I was like, no. (laughs) Um, But then I started to think about it and I thought maybe, maybe there was something possible there's so much in the book there's so many lyrics that are quoted that you know music is so much a part of the the way i approach trying to tell the story and so i thought that that could be a way to try to do it on stage um and i'd done hedwig and the angry inch and i'm not saying my show is like hedwig in many respects except that it's a person telling their story on stage through monologues and songs and then also sometimes playing other characters a little bit um so that was kind of helpful in imagining what it could be like um and then my friend steve mailer who's been my director for all these years we had worked together in 2002 on a production of henry V in boston where he has his theater company commonwealth shakespeare company and we've been looking for a project to do together and we weren't you know just weren't hadn't come up with anything particularly like yes this is the one and so when i i i, I thought about asking him also because he doesn't he didn't have that much history with rent he didn't really know it that well so i thought it would be really good for someone with that kind of real objectivity and lack of attachment mm-hmm. to that material to have eyes and ears open for what would work and what wouldn't work um and so we just he he helped me kind of like find a, a path of taking the book, which is 300 pages and right. carving it into a, you know, a 90 minute show. It's a totally different beast in so many ways. So that first step that he took to kind of like pare it down into a, the, like the strands of the narrative was enormously helpful. And then we started writing, I started writing some new songs for yeah. it. Um, when, when, when did, and, when did that impulse come and why? 
That that came around the same time. This was all like late 2015, mm. or I'm sorry, 2007, 15 years ago, 2007. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought like, well, if there, you know, I knew that there would be rent music that would be a part of it. I thought Losing My Religion would be a part of it because that was the song I sang for my initial audition. But I also thought, well, you know, for this for the story related stuff about my mom, I think it should be music that comes from me. I had already written a song with a friend about going home to see her while, while I was working called Visits to You. And that had been on my debut album, you know, this really small independent record that I'd done. And so I thought that song could, that made a lot of sense. And then I, then I started thinking about, well, maybe there are other ways that new music could help tell her story. Um, So we, we put together a reading with that new material and we put it in front of people really not knowing if it was even going to work at all. And everyone that who came said, yes, keep going, you know, and people that I trusted and knew would say, you know what, it's better as a book. <laughs> um, so, so we had, we had that kind of encourage, you know, that current encouraging um, wind behind our backs from the, from the get go. And what does performing it give you that the process of writing it uh, as a, as a book uh, does not, did not. Well, I get to, I didn't anticipate this. I didn't know what it would be like, um, but I really, I'm spending time with my mom. Mm-hmm. I'm spending time with Jonathan. I'm spending time hearing their words that have always given me a sense of strength or love, a sense of love, support. Like even even when it's not necessarily the words that say those things, just being in their being in relationship with them, it just feels activated and present in a way that um, I don't necessarily get to feel on on a daily basis. So. That was a benefit that I never anticipated that I absolutely feel. Yeah, yeah. And you talked a little bit about Hedwig and playing multiple roles. You play multiple roles in the show. Um, How did you think about kind of because they're varying strategies of how it's just you. You're up there with a band, but it's just you. Like, how did you think about how you were going to do that? And then finding people's voices as they show up in the story. Well, another another um, show that I saw, I've seen a number of one person shows over the years and people do approach playing different characters in widely different ways. Um, Lisa Crone, a wonderful actress, had a had a show that I loved called 2.5 Minute Ride. And there was a way that I felt she approached like playing her father that it, it was like, um, you know, something in her shifted physically and something in her shifted vocally, but she wasn't like putting on a full mask. It was like, it was like letting him out through her, which is distinct from like when, you know, when Anna Devere Smith does, you know, her one woman shows, she really goes full on and like does a huge change character wise. So it was like, I, I felt like it made more sense to lean in the Lisa Crone direction for this piece than in the Anna Devere Smith direction for this piece. You know, each piece sort of requires because it's my story that I'm telling. It was her story she was telling. It was a very personal relationship she had with her father. So it was like his voice came through her. And so that was the way that I talked to Steve about it. And then he agreed and then we just started playing. And so, you know, subtle, I guess there's, you could call it subtle ways of like when I'm embodying Jonathan, I'm not trying to imitate him. I'm trying to, I feel like some of his rhythms or what I feel like his cadence was mm. is sort of as much as anything when I'm, you know, in a little bit of physicality, just sort of 
his his inner vibe, I guess, is what I try to embody rather than like full on doing like an Inspector Clouseau, like, you know, putting on a mustache. Right. Yeah. You know, kind of You're not thing. trying to do the full Daphne Rubin Vega voice, right? For instance. But, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, I guess people could make an argument either way, right. but that was just the way that, that we, that made sense when we were trying to put it together. We're as you were creating this from your memories, were there voices that were particularly difficult to find? I wouldn't say difficult, but like differentiating, for instance, I mean, she's only in it for a very small conversation, but it's a very important conversation. But my aunt Roberta, mm. um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that she has like a particularly kind of distinctive accent or distinctive voice. So just trying to find a way to embody her, and again, her, her energy, I guess is what I really tried to do. Um, to me, my mom had a very strong Midwestern accent, so, and a kind of cadence that that was, I mean, her voice was so present in my memory, that was not a reach at all. But, you know, something like that um, was a little more, a little more of a, just trying to make, feel like it uh, feels distinctive, I guess, in that moment. And who's coming to the show these days? Who do you find are coming? Are they rent heads? Are they Star Trek fans? Are they a mixture? What's the, um, what's the makeup? I would imagine a good number of them are rent fans, yeah. mostly. Um, there is a bit of a, in my experience at like conventions, there's a bit of a crossover, mm. uh, a quite seemingly significant crossover of people who are fans yeah. of both, which makes a lot of sense to me because they're both pieces that speak to hope. Mm. They're both pieces that are about community. They're both, you know, they're, they're these you know, uh, they're idealistic, they're anti-cynical, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're, not, you know, there can be, they're dark, there are dark moments in them, but they're, you know, really, I think the fandoms are drawn to them because they have so much life and light in them and hope and sense of what's possible. Um, so I think there's a, you know, sometimes when at, at like a convention table, I have like my Star Trek pictures and my rent <laughs> pictures and there's people who literally go like, which one do I want? Which one do I want? You know, and then some people are like very clear which one they want. So yeah. if that's any indication, there's a little bit of both. But I I don't, I honestly don't know exactly who's in the audience yet. Um, I don't, I'm also not getting to do the kind of post-show right. interaction that I normally would because of our son. I'm coming home very soon after the Congratulations. show. Congratulations. You had a baby recently, hello. you and your husband. Partner, husband. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I want to come home and be, you know, do my dad mm, duty. Sure. Um, ordinarily and, you know, in hist historically, I say after, especially with this show, you know, people often would share when I've done it elsewhere, people would share their, their experiences of loss with yeah. me. It was very meaningful, but um, so it's a little bit uh, unusual for me not to get a better sense of like who's out there. If that makes right, any sense. right. What do you feel like this time around people are really responding to like how is it landing how is the story landing in 2022 differently than it did the last time you did it i mean i think in general the the conversations that we've had collectively as a society and world about grief and loss i think is a little more um it's a little less not that it was taboo before but i think people were a little more afraid of it or wanted to kind of look the other way and i think with covid um and, you know, living through a pandemic, I think that people are just a little more willing, not not from, I think there was a time when there was too much fatigue from it, but now there's space around it is enough that I think people are willing, ready and open to engaging with it in a way that maybe they wouldn't have before. Um, 
And uh, yeah, the idea of celebrating and talking about loss, um, celebrating the people you've lost and talking about losing them, I think is, is just a little more, people are maybe a little more ready to do that. Um, I think possibly because of the pandemic. Um, and not to say that they weren't before, but yeah, I just, I get the sense it's just a little more, there's a, that much more openness and, and mental health in general is just a subject that people have been willing to have, you know, more open conversations with about. There's so many public figures who've been that much more willing to share their experiences. And then whenever you see that happen, I just see tons of like, if social media is any indication, the way that people then share and share and share, I don't think that happened before the pandemic as much. I'll have more with Anthony right after the break. City National Bank doesn't generalize. They specialize. From entertainment and food and beverage to real estate and tech. Their dedicated team of bankers has strategic solutions for all of your unique industry needs. Work with a team who knows your industry while getting the scale of their parent company, RBC. City National Bank. See what personal can do for you at cnb.com. And now here's more with the actor, Anthony Rapp. As we've mentioned a few years back, you joined the Star Trek franchise and you mentioned earlier in our conversation that it was a life changing an- another life changing experience. Um, yeah, tell us a little more about that. What has been really uh, gratifying to you about that, uh, your involvement in that story and, and your role in it? Well, I mean, I'm, I've been a super nerd since I was a little kid, but I nev- truly never imagined myself being a, all the things that I was a nerd about, I always thought of myself as just a fan of. I wasn't, I truly never projected myself into them. Um, I projected myself into like shows, maybe like theater pieces, but like if I, I love Star Wars, I love Star Trek, I love DC Comics, you know, but I didn't, I didn't think I'm going to be in that one day. So when it happened, it was just like to be a part of something that I revered was that and alone was mind boggling and life changing. But then to be a part of a family, uh, an, uh, an international family of people who have loved, it's not just that they love this world of Star Trek, they, it shapes their lives, many of them. They talk about this so openly, which is again, a way that's similar to Rent, that they take these themes and ideas and characters into their hearts. And it, I've talked to so many people who became scientists because of it, became, you know, uh, uh, physicists, whatever, you know, got involved in engineering. It, it changed the way that they talked to their parents. It, it, like they, they had the people at conventions share, like they, they had a friend who was suicidal. They sat with them and watched an episode of Star Trek and they had a conversation and that person got brought back from the brink. I mean, these are the kinds of things that people share. So to be a part of something that means so much to so many people, after already having been a part of something that meant so much so this it's just it's just like a bonus round experience and then to combine that with an incredible group of people that i get to you know doing a tv show is not easy it's a lot of hours it's hard work to do to get to do that alongside these incredible human beings Sonequa martin green and wilson cruz and blue del barrio and mary wiseman and tignataro and doug jones like these are exemplary human beings all of them and uh, so it's just a pleasure to be at work and the crew is fantastic. Like 
I, I've had friends who've been a part of TV shows where that is not the case. And, and that can be the, the opposite kind of experience can be so devastating. Um, so again, I just feel like the, the bonus round, the, 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 all the gods are smiling down on me. Yeah. And you, uh, get to be one of the, in a show that is like famous of famous for kind of these moments of landmark representation kind of throughout the years, you get to be a landmark in that franchise is, uh, one of the first, uh, yes. one of the first openly gay characters, uh, in the, in the series. Yes. Uh, I imagine that's yeah, quite that gratifying. Like, <laughs> that's very gratifying. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like I, we, I did get to meet Nichelle Nichols. She was so Amazing. lovely. Yeah. And to, to, you know, I know I, in meeting her, I, I felt this beautiful sense, like she absolutely appreciated and understood the iconic status that had been granted her. And she had enormous pride in it. And at the same time, she was a human being who was living her life and doing her best work. And she embraced every aspect of it. But the truth is, yeah, it's people. You have to just, you you show up, you, you be your authentic self. And if you're rewarded with this kind of um, recognition for that, and if you help to break down barriers because of it, that's an, that's an incredible honor. And so I, I follow in her footsteps. Um, and to do so alongside Wilson, who's such a pioneer and activist himself, and it, it's, you know, it, it is total pinch me dream come true. Right. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about the similarities between uh, Star Trek fans and uh, Rent fans, but I, that was actually one of my questions is more broadly, are you finding that like theater fans and sci-fi fans overlap? Because as someone who is a fan of both sci-fi and theater, sometimes I feel like I'm the only one with you, I guess, apparently. Um, yeah, no, I understand. Um, I do feel like there's a bit of an overlap. Um especially certainly with these pieces i'm sure that's true of others as well it seems like i've met a fair number of theater fans who are also like doctor who fans yeah you know mm-hmm. um so yeah it's like stories that are about i don't know that expand your mind and expand your what's the sense of what's possible and there's a heightened sense of reality that people who are fans of musicals obviously are willing to take a ride when you know people burst into song and it's not that different if you like have people in rubber masks talking to each other as aliens, yeah. you know. Um, so I think that that uh, that's part of what the bridge in between these fandoms is. And um, and I think it's also on the other side of it. I think it's no accident. Star Trek in particular has had so many theater actors who've done very well in it because it, it you know, being a part of Star Trek requires a kind of willingness to lean into um you know, heightened language, heightened ideas in a way that I think if you're, if you've been trained in classical theater, it right. kind of, you know, that I think it's no accident that Patrick Stewart excelled in Star Trek, you know, coming from Shakespeare, you know, it's, it, it, I'm not saying it's exactly on that mm-hmm. level, but there are aspects of it that are require you to kind of like step into shoes that are not your own in a way that's not quite the same thing as when you're playing like the next door neighbor right. in a regular old, show yeah and in addition to all these things going on in your life you were also one of the first people to step forward with uh sexual harassment and assault allegations against kevin spacey why was it important to you to speak out on that um i knew that i was not the only one and um i was hopeful that other people would join me in that first stepping forward and then it it took a few days but then they did and so i'm i'm 
you know, I applaud them. I, it's not easy. There's so many other stories that I continue to hear to this day of people who have not come forward publicly and they may never come forward publicly of either things that happened to themselves or that they witnessed. Um, you know, I am, I'm, I'm sending all strength to these courageous men over in the UK who are um, going through the ordeal of, of the trial over there. The, uh, I, I have to believe that the Crown Protective Services wouldn't be moving forward in the way they are if they didn't feel they had, you know, very strong case. Um, so I, you know, I just send them a lot of strength because it is an ordeal. Yeah. yeah. Has that ordeal been worth it to you? Um, it's hard to, on balance, I mean, I, I, it's worth it in the sense that I feel like my coming forward, which then, you know, helped pave the way for others to come forward, has helped protect people, protect others. And, you know, there's a part of the, my 14 year old self that got to come full circle in a way that I also didn't know was possible. And part of the whole thing of, you know, I think many of the women who came forward about Harvey Weinstein and others would say, and, you know, I, there's so many things that I've, I've read people talk about that they're, they're so resonant. But, you know, for so long, you talk about these things as they, they happen to you, but you talk like I and many of us talked about it, about the other person and what they did. And it was about them. And it was only really, I think, in the last few years that so many of us started to talk about ourselves and how it affected us and started to really kind of start to try to square that circle and and patch patch wounds that we didn't even recognize as wounds um so that 14 year old self who didn't even know that he needed to come through that healing process in a way it the whole thing started a process that that uh has you know i don't it's not like it's all sewn up forever you know but it's it was incredibly um, meaningful to be able for have his voice fully heard. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to be in appearing in an upcoming documentary series called Surviving Hollywood. Can you what can you tell us about that? Well, I can tell you that we're you know I I was approached by these wonderful women who are working at Cineflix who are deeply committed to um, trying to elevate the stories of survivors um, of all kinds of mischief and abuse that have been endured um, in, in, our, in our business. And it's not just about sexual assault by any means. Um, you know, in the early days, still all of this goes on to some degree, but the misogyny that was rampant in the early days of Hollywood, the racism. Um, and uh, so we're going to do our best to really shine a light on these things and to elevate the stories of the people and talk and as a way to continue to try to pave forward the progress to that much more safety for all of us um, in this industry and the way that this industry impacts the world. Inevitably, if this industry has more safety, hopefully that will ripple ripple out to mean more people everywhere have more safety. Yeah, it seems as if you are committed to advocacy on this for uh, over the long haul, it seems like. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, Without You was currently scheduled to run into April. Is that... Is that due to a filming schedule? Will you be ha hopping back onto the uh, onto the the ship for uh, after that? 
Um, we we don't know exactly when. Hopefully, we're going to be doing season mm -hmm. six. So uh, I I believe there's a chance we can go longer. We're still we're like trying to figure out how long we can yeah. go. Um, but I would love to do it as long as possible. Selfishly, it's great to be home in New yeah. York working while with my family right, right here. You know, like we can all move up to Toronto too. We will do that. But it's just nice to be home at the same. And time. you have finished five shooting season five which will come out later this year is that where you are in that whole process yes, okay yes right yes yeah. yes yeah. um have you ever wanted to write something again either a book or like, like the memoir you wrote or a show um possibly you know i was i actually was talking to an, I had an interview earlier today that, you know part of the memoir the reason for writing the memoir started with that conversation with rob about like I feel like I had something to say about being a young person and loss. And, you know, if as I'm entering this phase of fatherhood, maybe I feel like I'll have something to say about it. There's a, been a lot of people who have said a lot of things about fatherhood. So I don't know. I'll have to sort of see. Um, I'd certainly have been enjoying writing music, um, wrote it, you know, the music I wrote for the show. So I think I'll continue doing that. I like collaborating a lot. Writing a book I found very lonely. Um, <laughs> So maybe I will, but I, you know, the idea of working with other writers too is really exciting to find a good partnership um, and to really be able to bounce off ideas. Uh, so yeah, I don't yeah. know. And how do you think about your back on stage? When was the last time you were on stage before this run and um, without you? Um, I mean, I do, I do concerts yeah, yeah. as regularly as possible, but yeah, in a show was If Then, yeah. which we did the tour in 2016. Yeah. So that went from about sometime in 2013 with, um, out of town tryout that we went open on Broadway in 2014 and then did the uh, tour for like nine months starting at the end of 2015 into 2016. Right. Yeah. So it's been a yeah. while. And how do you think, how do you think moving forward of theater kind of fitting into your career and all your activities as you, uh, you know, continue to do film and TV stuff? I mean, it's my, it's my favorite thing to do um, the rhythms the rhythms of doing eight shows a week uh knowing what you know the time frame i just really like that uh, i love doing film and television too especially good projects and and the sort of chaos nature of it i enjoy but it i i like a little more mm -hmm. routine especially with a family it just makes it feel a little more manageable um but you know i'm certainly gonna not say no to projects but yeah i i would love if i could do like a nice long run in new york of a show that's kind of the dreamiest dream have me. you thought about what that show would be or what kind of show you uh would want to be in are you a new are you a new work kind of guy i yeah. like new work yeah but i also love yeah. classical i mean i love doing henry five yeah. um you know there's a i there's one shakespeare role that, there's a Quite, a, I would, I would say yes to many Shakespeare roles, but the one that I would really love to try to get a hand at at some point is uh, Iago. Mm -hmm. I like playing, I like playing villains. I like playing dark, twisted people. Um, I don't know, you know, I just always have enjoyed. I think that's part of, I think part of the job of an actor can be to shine a light and sh and hold a mirror up to the human experience, which includes playing monsters sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, like Ray Fiennes in Schindler's List was one of the great performances of all time to me, and. And you know Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs. These are the kinds of performances that just like, I, that are that are sear themselves into my memory forever. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, if you had told me years and years ago, oh, you're going to be playing a documentary filmmaker in a rock opera based on La Boheme, and it's going to change your life, I'd be like, okay. But you know, so I, you know, new works are also really, really right. exciting. Yeah.
Well, uh, we look forward to uh, seeing whatever brings you back on stage, and we will look forward to uh, season five of uh, Star Trek when it comes out. Um, thanks so much, Anthony. Thank thanks you. for thanks for chatting with me. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. That was Anthony Rapp, now starring in Without You at New World Stages. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. Or tell a friend about Stagecraft. Find past episodes and subscribe at all the pod purveyors, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is a great place to find more theater for your ears. Until next episode, find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Thanks for listening, and see you at the theater. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.